In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to another episode of In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind and in the news with Bernstein's research analysts, who are in the know. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this, as well as every episode. I am Sid Mulcahy from Bernstein's Toronto office. And with me today is an amazing guest, our U.S. energy and global natural resource analyst, Bob Brackett. The energy transition is likely going to be one of the biggest investment cycles that the world has ever embarked on. Bob is going to draw on experiences from other commodity as well as technology transitions to tell us why we might be stuck with oil a lot longer than people think. He has an incredibly unique perspective covering opposing sides of the energy transition, both the yin and the yang. On one end, there's fossil fuels that are being disrupted, as well as on the other side, the enablers of the energy transition, like copper and lithium miners. Without further ado, Bob, welcome. Thank you, Sid. So you sit in an office surrounded by a whole bunch of tech analysts who are famous for all sorts of S-curves to describe different types of disruptions for things like consumer electronics. Why do you think that that's the wrong framework to use for commodity transitions? And it's an argument that I've had with myself for half a decade, perhaps a decade now. And the metaphors that a tech analyst uses, things like uh, digital cameras coming and supplanting analog cameras or flat screens supplanting the old uh, CRTs we used to use, or smartphones supplanting dumb phones. And all of those were consumer devices with low price points and a markedly improved utility, let's say. And so adoption was rapid and followed the S-curves. One flaw in that is not all technologies follow the S-curves. We never talk about Google Glasses. We don't talk about technologies that fail. So first, there's a survivorship bias that tech analysts tend to fall for. And the other is that you know when we think about electric vehicles supplanting the internal combustion engine, it's not really a utility shift as much as it's an emissions shift. And so what we're solving for isn't so much give me a better car. Arguably, they're cooler and they're faster and they accelerate more quickly. But uh, the product is awfully similar in utility. It just addresses this huge externality that we haven't been paying for since the Industrial Revolution, which is emissions. Okay. Clearly, the utility for cars was much better than it was for horses. So if TVs or consumer electronics like cameras are not the right analogy, or neither is horses. What other analogies do you think you could use to describe energy and commodity transitions? Yeah. And so the relative utility of a car versus a horse was in the general application of moving across a city from point A to B was huge. And the price points were comparable if you include the opex of a horse, which is putting stuff in one end of the horse and cleaning up the stuff that comes out of the other end of the horse. The difference with EVs, so for example, the the other thing that leads to rapid or slow adoption is the level of that investment. So if you think about today, there is one car in the U.S. market priced under $20,000. The average car being sold today is between $40,000 and $50,000. The average EV can be $100,000. So you are spending tens of thousands of dollars more, a significant fraction of the typical income of an American not to consider somebody in another country that might make less, to make this choice. So it's an extremely expensive choice 
uh, and you have to weigh that against the utility. And clearly government policies are helping to incent that choice. But really uh, think about the price point and uh, think about the utility. And so behind a house, buying a vehicle is the second largest expense a household makes. So big, significant, long-lived decisions, not, hey, I tried a new TV and I can throw it away three years later. The other big government decision that seems like it's becoming a huge shift is that post the financial crisis, it was all about monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus being pulled back, more like fiscal austerity. It feels like that is completely switched on its head. So if we go back towards a world of fiscal stimulus, a world of reshoring, a world of nearshoring, what does that do towards commodity consumption and intensity? Yeah, I always contrast the last two crises. If you think about the GFC, the global financial crisis, 08, 09, and how policymakers solved that versus COVID and how policymakers solved that. So coming out of the GFC, we had to save the banks and uh, we recapitalized the market. And so ironically, making capital available to my sector, whether it's the oil and gas companies or even the, the mining companies, there was way too much capital put into the sector. Shale was in its infancy. It absorbed every dollar of capital. And as a result of poor investment behaviors from the miners and from the oil and gas companies, the GFC turned out to be deflationary. Right? We crushed the price of oil from 100 bucks a barrel down to 50 and held it there. And we did that with capital. Contrast that to COVID. And we did not inject stimulus into the investment part of the economy. Uh, we injected stimulus into the consumer part of the economy. And that was not deflationary. One would argue it was the exact opposite. And so the next crisis, and there will always be another crisis, right, if we do it proper, if policymakers do it properly, right, let's make it deflationary on the energy transition side of things. So if we're going to have a good crisis, let's not waste it. Let's apply the lessons we've learned from the last two. That's really interesting that the last 15 years, you would have thought that low cost of capital was really bullish for tech stocks, but it turns out it was actually bad for your industry, which is quite different. But now that that is no longer true, capital is no longer free, how has that changed capital allocation for energy companies as well as mining companies? I can explain the behavior for the energy companies better than the miners. So I'll start there. I collected my first paycheck in oil and gas in 1990. And from 1990 until maybe around 2018, you would allocate capital to an oil and gas project. And you'd say, well, look, the holy triangle of project management, it's not going to be on time, it's not going to be on budget, and it's not going to deliver what I promised. And that's true whether I'm fixing, renovating my kitchen or whether I'm building a $12 billion floating, producing storage offloading vessel. But you would allocate capital saying, well, I'll probably get one of the parts of the triangle wrong, but price will bail me out because the world is running out of oil supply. Right? Twilight in the desert, the oil drum, peak oil society. And so uh, you always invested into a world where someday supply ran out or runs out. You know, Now we're in a world where reasonable forecasters from oil and gas companies look and say, hey, there's a tangible risk that oil demand peaks. By 2030, by 2040, rolls over, plateaus, and starts to decline. An industry that used to be 
hopeful of running out of supply is fearful of running out of demand. And that tightens the purse strings. That raises the required return, forces companies to return cash to shareholders and let them reallocate it rather than chase the next cycle. And we're seeing that in spades uh, on the oil and gas side. We're seeing business models that pivoted from growth at all costs to let's have the best free cash flow yield in the S&P 500. So that's kind of the oil and gas side. It sounds like if we were to move away from the actual equities and move back to the commodity itself, it sounds like that's in a world of everyone acting as a rational player. So if supply wasn't necessarily the gating factor, why wouldn't Saudi, another OPEC region or another government organization come in and just spoil the oil party and spoil the market with just ample supply? If you think about where oil supply growth has come from to meet this demand growth, it's really come from a handful of asset classes since 2000. It's come from deep water, and deep water for the most part is not quite tapped out, but well known. There's a few remaining basins where exciting things are happening. It came from oil sands. Oil sands are the lowest decline, longest lived, highest CO2 footprint asset we have and they've gone to very modest growth. It came from shale, and we can all forecast where shale goes, but we argue that effectively shale is tapped out. And then it came from kind of OPEC plus projects. And so if you look forward, most of those growth avenues are behind us. Then why does OPEC plus really want to desire to add too much capacity to the market? One great data point I keep in my head, if you think about global oil supply, it's around 100 million barrels a day. Only three countries produce more than 10. And number four is half that size. And it's the US, it's Russia and Saudi. The US has been remarkable in shale. Let's say that that's flat or grows modestly. And then you're left with Russia and Saudi that have no strong desire to flood the market. Saudi Aramco has declared that today the kingdom has 12 million barrels a day of sustainable capacity. They'll grow it to 13 over the next five years. So they'll grow it by 1 million barrels a day, and they never plan to grow it beyond there. That's what they're on record saying now. And so the answer is they would rather have 13 million barrels at a controlled price than 14, 15, 16 million at an uncontrolled price of oil. Okay. If those are the three, let's call it like swing producers... Shale has been obviously the biggest growth driver over the past decade. It seems like this past year, we've started to see wobbles in shale productivity. It seems like all of the gains from the shale revolution are now starting to slow down. So is the shale technology revolution over? In our view, yeah. And I'll dissect the shale technology revolution into three big levers. This is not uniform belief. So for example, we had Darren Woods, the CEO of ExxonMobil at our conference uh, earlier this summer, and he's of the view that there's more levers to pull. But lever number one was longer and longer wells. So the easiest way to get more oil out of a well is just drill a longer well and frack a longer well and expose more of that reservoir. We've topped out at ideal lateral lengths of about two miles, about 10,000 foot. There's lots of permitting reasons and there's lots of operational reasons where 10,000 feet wells for oil production are just about right. There's a small category of 15,000 foot wells and whatnot. But on average, we can see year after year, again, the beauty of my sector is imagine if you're a restaurant analyst and every restaurant had to report 
the volume of hamburgers sold and the volume of fries sold every month. Right. That's what I get for the oil and gas sector. I get a record of how much oil and how much gas out of every well and who drilled that well and the location of that well and, and how those hamburgers and French fries declined over time. And so the ability to watch things like lateral length over time, that's factual data. It's well-grounded. And that growth in lateral length has peaked. The other thing our industry does is because a decade ago, there was a lot of concern about fracking. Everyone said, well, what are you putting down in the well? Is it going to contaminate the groundwater? I should be afraid. So the industry discloses the fluids that they put into the wells. And that includes how much water and how much sand. And so we get these beautiful data sets of, you know, what are you sticking down the well? In the early days, more sand and more water for every foot uh, was the easiest lever to pull. And we used to pump maybe a thousand pounds of sand per foot. And then we got to a ton, 2000 pounds of sand per foot. And then people realized, well, that sand and that water wasn't creating more of a fracture. It wasn't uh, paying for itself. And so we let off on that. So those two levers were the dominant levers in shale, longer wells hitting that rock harder. And then there's a whole universe of sort of other technologies that fall into that third bucket. Uh, things like keeping the well in the zone perfectly, finding the best zones, et cetera. But yeah, net net, the, the observation from the data we have is productivity is growth has peaked and, and we should expect low, low single digit declines in productivity. And that's consistent, frankly, with the consolidation behavior we see in the space. Okay, I think we've talked a lot about the supply side. The demand side, I think, despite all this disruptive talk about EVs, I'm always surprised to see the headlines that oil demand is now at record highs. Yep. And even China's reopening has not come to fruition as most people thought. Why is that the case? Is this like a case of Jevons' paradox? Yes. And so for, for so Jevons' paradox... Um, was this observation made by an economist at the age of coal, so the turn of the 1800s to 1900s, and said that coal-fired power plants were getting more and more efficient. And you might say, well, as they get more and more efficient, we need less of them, right? But in fact, the more efficient we made a coal-fired power plant, the more coal-fired power plants we built, right? So efficiency begets consumption. Uh, and so you see that... Uh, classic examples, whenever civil engineers try to design a new highway, you add a lane and you think you're going to relieve traffic and instead you fill that lane instantly. And so there is a core utility to consume the things that a barrel of oil uh, gives access to. I, know, I, I always say nobody wants a barrel of oil, but when I refine that barrel of oil, I get petrochemicals, I get plastics. They grow with GDP. I get jet fuel for travel. It grows with GDP. I get diesel, right? Diesel connects the uh, us to the products we consume. I get gasoline uh, and I drive from place to place and I get a whole host of specialty products. And so the reality is um, sitting here today, we have a killer app that is displacing gasoline demand with electric vehicles. They're real, they're being adopted. Uh, they're following an S-curve, and we can argue about the shape and, and the ultimate penetration level, but it's, it's real, it's viable, it's here. We don't really have killer apps for the rest of the barrel. So we're really kind of attacking about a quarter or about a fifth of all of oil demand, and we're still watching the economy grow, and therefore 
the other 80% of that continue to grow. Can I just dig down on that killer app thesis? It feels to me that over the past 30, 40 years, U.S. gasoline consumption has stayed relatively flat, despite better emission standards and so forth. I guess I could extrapolate that to most developed markets. But if emerging markets are kind of the growth driver for a lot of gasoline demand, do they have the infrastructure in place to actually support EVs? And then hence, maybe they take the ICE demand away from developed markets that lose that demand? So number one, we are now in a world where non-OECD is the majority of oil demand. Number two, we're in a world where only non-OECD oil demand grows, right? The OECD is past peak oil demand. So we, we know this occurs. And then if you think about the non-OECD world, just on population, you know, you watch China and you watch India and you watch emerging Africa and so on. And clearly, you know, China, who will uh, have the infrastructure for EVs, they were extremely early. They, they are uh, an oil importer, they're energy dependent, uh, and they were very early in thinking through the EV. Uh, yeah, you get to other parts of the world, and it's much less obvious how we're going to tackle the challenge of local electricity, which China derives from burning coal, uh, the scale of Africa, the scale of India. And so, yeah, there is a uh, an unintended consequence. If you think about um, the analogy of uh, cattle, right? When I'm raising cattle, I'm raising them for meat and I'm raising them for leather and some other products. If the demand for leather collapses, well, one, I'm going to have a bunch of leather, right? And that price will drop and someone will take it at the right price. And the price of meat is going to have to carry the cost of raising the cow. Right? And so if you think about gasoline and the refined barrel, well, if gasoline demand falls and the refining complex is still spitting it out, well, if that price of gasoline falls, well, then why wouldn't you know emerging markets say, send me your gasoline, send me your old internal combustion engines, and I'll drive them around happily. So there are these sort of uh, second order effects that we've barely begun to contemplate it, it, against this myopic you know, oil demand, Hubbard's peak sort of model. In this type of environment, I just question what an energy company should do. You know, should they return all the cash to shareholders and not drill anymore? Uh, should they do what a lot of European companies are doing and pivot towards the energy transition um, I've recently seen, I was kind of surprised to see this, Exxon is now a lithium producer. <laughs> um, should they go that route? What should an energy producer do? They have a long track record of trying to do other things and failing at it. And so the burden of proof on any company that goes into a new business line, the burden of proof is on that company to demonstrate they know what the heck they're doing. It's not on the investor to convince them or the sell side to convince them that they're not. Uh, and so burden of proof is extremely high. So that brings us to three ideas. One is just keep doing what you're doing. Drill wells for oil and gas, sell that oil and gas, earn a profit and return that to shareholders. Option two, if you think about carbon capture and sequestration, it's everything the oil industry does in reverse. Instead of drilling wells, putting them in a pipeline, sending them to a point source, you're finding a point source, putting it in a pipeline and drilling a well. So it's all the core capabilities. And so 
as companies you know edge their way into carbon capture sequestration, that's interesting to me. The big challenge there is I know the price of oil globally. I know the price of gas regionally. The price of carbon is fuzzier and less certain and, and harder to commit to. But policies is bringing clarity to that. The third thing an oil and gas company can do, which you alluded to, is lithium. Now, why in the world would you think about lithium? And again, I, I started in the oil field. Whenever you drill a well, you have to record the chemistry of the brine in that well. Every oil well produces a mix of oil and maybe some gas and always water. And it's almost always salt water, 99% of the time. And that salt water is a brine. It's got sodium chloride. It's got some potassium. It's got magnesium, the things you, when you're drinking bottled water. It also has lithium. So if you're ExxonMobil, that never throws a data set away, and you have a global data set of brine chemistry around the world, you can look and say, hey, you know what? In this part of Arkansas, these reservoirs have a whole lot of lithium in them. And you know what? In a laboratory, I can desalinate water. What's desalinating water? I'm taking a water with a salt in it, and I'm stripping out the salt, throwing that away and giving you drinkable water. Well, what if I don't throw away the salt? What if instead I desalinate the water and keep the lithium and then sell the lithium? And what if I'm a big oil company like Exxon or Chevron or even Schlumberger? And what if I deploy a whole lot of capital into that sector? So if lithium isn't necessarily the bottleneck, and there's a lot of bottlenecks out there for the energy transition, where do you feel like the bottleneck is? Which commodity? And can you put some of these numbers in context for us? Yeah, and it almost harkens back earlier on. You asked about uh, capital discipline or reinvestment strategies for oil and gas and miners, and I said it was harder to explain the miners. and And what I meant by that is, in 2016, we had a mining recession. We had some of the large cap miners collapse and have, approach the risk of bankruptcy. None of the big ones went bankrupt. And it was sort of at the back end of the China super cycle where the mining industry, like the oil industry, had this reputation of what, what was my cash flow last year? Let me spend it next year. And that stopped uh, with a slowdown in China. Well, suddenly they found religion around capital discipline. And so the miners have been modestly growing CapEx, kind of inflation plus, since 2016. Right? That's, that's a pretty long track record. And they're still not taking the bait of extremely high cash flows, right, and bumping CapEx up. And they've been returning that cash to shareholders. And then the question is, well, wait a minute. Aren't we going to run out of all this stuff? Isn't the future all around copper and nickel and all of these other commodities? And so at least on the oil and gas side, the disciplines around my industry is going away. My business demand for my products going away. Demand for copper is not going away ever, you know, arguably best predictor of global GDP is how much steel we put into the earth. So the demand for steel doesn't go away. And so as a result, you kind of scratch your head and say, well, well, why aren't the miners good that they're not being idiots, but why aren't they being idiots? And one of the interesting gating factors, it's not unit economics, right? It's not, hey, I need a higher price of copper to justify the project. It's almost ESG. It is a local ESG that sort of prevents the global ESG solution. So the global ESG solution is we put too much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. We didn't have to pay for it. And we need to stop putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And you kind of need in capitalistic economy, you need a price signal to do that. 
And so we need the energy transition, which is really just an emissions transition. So we need this transition. We need more copper for it, more nickel and lithium. Uh, that's the global ESG problem, right? The risk of uh, unpredictable environmental impacts. But that local solution is I still don't want an open pit copper mine in my backyard. And so we see the best predictor of sort of the, the backup in copper projects or nickel or whatever is some local ESG concern, not unit economics. Fascinating. Taking a step back, one of the things that I find interesting about copper is that, yes, you did have the China super cycle. We now have the EV as well as the electrification super cycle. Can you put in context, like, is this going to be just as big as the China commodity cycle? Is it going to be bigger? Is it going to be multiple times that? Like, how do we think about this or how do we frame this? So copper is a great example. The way to think about copper, and we'll start by thinking about oil. The planet consumes about 36 billion barrels of oil a year, and there's 8 billion of us, right? And so each of us is consuming, on average, some more than others, four or five barrels a day, and oil today is 80 bucks. So you're looking at up to 400 bucks out of your pocket to pay for oil, and that's a lot, certainly for emerging markets. Now, think about copper. On average, global copper consumption is around 30 billion kilograms, right? Again, there's 8 billion of us. So every year we use about 4 kilograms of copper. Well, what's the price of copper today? It's about 8 bucks a kilogram. So I am one-tenth as dependent on copper into the economy uh, as I am oil into the economy. So from that perspective, right, I always think about what's the price elasticity of copper. Well, copper can run pretty hot before you convince that consumer that not to spend uh, that it's eight bucks a kilogram, 30 bucks a year. Now it's 60 bucks a year. And so generally speaking, metals going into the global economy are relatively cheap for those energy transition metals, the coppers and nickels and the lithiums and whatnot. Does it matter that with oil, once you use it, it's gone? Whereas if you use copper, it's around forever and there's a recycling element to it and then we can eventually reuse it. Do we ever get to a base that's big enough where that ends up becoming the solution? So I'll come, I'll, I'll address copper in one second, but let's talk about lithium. Lithium is going to be the first metal that becomes circular. So today the absolute lion's share of lithium uh, going forward is in electric vehicle batteries. Those batteries sit in a car. That car has a GPS location on it. The car has a computer that tells you how old and tired that battery is. When that battery hits end of useful life, you're going to pull into a garage and you're going to pull out that battery and you're going to recycle that and get back that lithium. And so when we get to a world of uh, equilibrium, you can imagine a world where cars from 10 years ago, if that's how long the batteries last, uh, get recycled and made into the next battery. So lithium becomes circular first. This is decades away. We're talking 2040s and beyond. Um, copper, yeah, the, the interesting thing about copper is you know, generally if I put copper into the economy, it lasts about 30 years. And so every year about 3% of the installed copper in the economy comes out. And we only capture about a third of that through recycling. So it's relatively easy uh, to pull a wire out of a 
transformer. It's easy to pull copper pipe out of an old house. It's impossible to put bearable uh, buried copper out of the ground. It doesn't make economic sense. So there's a cost curve for recycling copper. Uh, and, and we kind of do that, which is easy. So uh, understanding recycling copper is critical to getting your supply demand right. But we still look out and say, uh, as opposed to lithium or even as opposed to aluminum, we see a call on mining copper that goes out uh, as far as we can practically see. I've already asked you the question about what energy companies should do in terms of allocating capital, but maybe I should ask you the same thing about mining companies. Maybe they should just pivot to become recycling companies. I'm not sure. But if they can't grow in their space because organic growth is limited to them because of this local ESG phenomenon, what should they do? Should they, again, return the cash to shareholders? Should they go after M&A because we've seen that sort of pick up as of late? What do you think miners should do? So at a high level, uh, miners should do low carbon intensity projects, right? So what's kind of remarkable is we think about aluminum helping the energy transition or nickel helping the energy transition. If you are mining with extremely high CO2 footprints, right, you're not actually helping the problem, right? It's, it's a bit of window dressing. You need to have low CO2. So chase that. In terms of um, M&A, Right. The, the other thing to think about with the miners is just how long the cycles are. Right. We, we had uh, this morning or last night BHP report and talk about some of their organic pipeline. And they're looking at, OK, by 2030, we'll start this. Right. Seven years is two lifetimes for an equity investor. But that's kind of table stakes for getting a project up and going. Uh, you, a couple of years ago, um, BHP, for example, guided It'll take them three years just to do stakeholder engagement in some of their projects. That involves dropping an anthropologist into a community and just having that person listen and talk and build a relationship and let everyone understand what's going to happen. Right. So extremely long time cycles uh, against targets where we have to be net zero in 20 years. Right. So the, there's a fundamental mismatch between investing cycles, the energy transition, and how long it takes to actually mine and get mines up and running. So in the short run, the answer is if, if I want volume, you know, like if I'm a mining CEO that wants to show volume growth, I kind of have to do it inorganically. And we've seen a bit of that this year. Uh, but then the question becomes, well, do, does that, is that CEO incented to even want to show that right outside of empire building? So the answer is we've seen opportunistic M&A. We haven't seen global consolidation. We've seen pretty premiums for smaller bolt-ons. You know, when we look at the top 80 miners and, and make a wish list of what would I buy at this price, it's a fairly finite universe. Uh, so we'll get a handful of deals, but I, I don't see the answer to the mining shortfall as let's create, instead of four diversified miners, let's create more big global diversified miners. Bob, I'm sure we could talk about the energy transition forever, but I think what I've learned out of this podcast is there is no easy solution. There is no silver bullet. There's so much nuance to all of this. So before I let you go, maybe I'll finish off with like a fun question for you. What are your thoughts about the superconductor LK99 or whether we'll ever get a superconductor in our lifetimes? Yes, that's actually ending on a sad note and I'll tell you why. So 
a few weeks ago, LK99, uh, news of that was released. It was South Korean laboratories that had come up with a room temperature superconductor. And amazingly, it was constructed from a very simple mineral mixture of lead, a lot of lead and copper. So I wrote a quick note. If this thing worked, right, the price of lead would skyrocket. The price of lead zinc miners, right, that, that asset would be... It, it, it would be like um, Star Trek, where dilithium crystals were the things that powered the enterprise. You know, suddenly lead would be the dilithium crystal of today. Uh, now, the challenge is that subsequent testing has proven that they, they understand the process not to be superconducting. Uh, so maybe there's, there's something to be learned about that particular crystal. Uh, but yeah, I think LK99, um, I, there, I won't write a follow-up note. I was super excited. And the answer is, uh, hey, you know, everything's in the physical world. I'll, I'll end with a complaint. And it comes back to deflation. So if you think about the last decade, we have used software as a massive deflationary tool. If you think about Uber, Uber never built a car in the physical world. They took spare capacity and reallocated it. You know, Airbnb never built a house. It reallocated physical capacity. Um, same, you know, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera. You go down the list, uh, everything we did with software driving efficiency from existing capital. The challenges we face going forward are we need to expand physical capital. So stop thinking about the metaverse. Think about the physical universe. And that just means we need to do a whole lot of moving earth and processing metals and building turbines and solar farms and EVs, right? So we're back to the physical world and the challenge is, are we going to do it fast enough? I love that you ended off that way because it comes back full circle that this is going to be one of the biggest investment cycles of a generation. So with that, Bob, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. My pleasure, Sid. You've been listening to In the Know with Bernstein Research. I'm Sid Malkani. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like or subscribe. If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at BernsteinResearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.